Please open your Bibles back to Matthew's Gospel this morning. We're going to be looking at, today is the first of several studies, not an extended time in this portion of God's Word, but Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be taking a look for several weeks at what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, but more specifically, we're going to be looking at these Beatitudes that our Lord Jesus sets forth here. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll read several verses here this morning, beginning at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, we'll stop our reading there for the time being. We began this year by looking at Paul's call to the saints in Rome to be awake, to be alert, knowing the time, our salvation being nearer now than when we first believed. And there's a part of me that's not ready to give up those words that Paul speaks there in Romans chapter 13. I I think the whole sense of urgency that led me to begin this year on that note, awake, be alert, for your salvation is nearer now than when it first appeared. That very thing has in some sense led me now to take you through our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, and particularly, at least for this time, being through the Beatitudes themselves. The main reason is this, that as our salvation approaches, it certainly strikes me, at least, as important that when our Lord appears, as we read Matthew 24, that we might be found, indeed, to be being faithful that we might be found to be what he calls there in Matthew 24, verse 45, those wise servants. We read there Matthew 24 just as a brief reminder of what we just looked at a few minutes ago of another beatitude in verse 46. The Lord Jesus says concerning that wise servant, that faithful servant who is waiting and laboring on for his master, he says, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. And brethren, I don't know about you, but I know that as I look out at the world around me, there is one thing that I want to be true of me, and I hope will be true of you. I want us to be found by our Lord on that day, being and doing that which He has instructed And here in this Sermon on the Mount, we find that which I would deem, because of its place in this gospel, and because of its extended discourse, that which is of first importance. It is the longest discourse that we find 
in the Gospels of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is the first extended discourse that we find in the Gospels of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, in light of the fact that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, in light of the fact that Paul tells us that we are to be a people that are knowing the time, in light of the fact that our Lord Jesus says that that servant is blessed who when he returns, his master will find being obedient and doing the things that he's commanded and being that this Sermon on the Mount is placed first. I think it's important that we give attention to it, that we come back to it and we ask what would be so important that it would be the very first things that we hear fall from the mouth of this one that will soon return. Further, I would say that these Beatitudes and the things which follow them should strike us as critical because of the particular times in which we find ourselves today. If I might use the imagery that the Lord uses in this Sermon on the Mount, the rains, brethren, are descending with a torrential downpour of wickedness. The floods of judgment on a reprobate generation are rising like a deluge. And the winds are blowing and they are beating vehemently upon every house, upon every family, upon every church. If you think that you and I, this church, our families, our homes... Our lives individually are not impacted in some way by that judgment which is presently upon this nation and upon this world in which we live, then you're sadly mistaken. And I'm pleading with you that you open your eyes and that you see what's going on. You can't go to a school without indoctrination with these wicked reprobate things that are being taught. You can't walk down a street without seeing it. You can't turn a television on. You can't go into a store without it being placarded everywhere. Our kids are on social media. Our kids are hearing things, are seeing things in the school settings that they're in or wherever it may be that they go to get their sources of information that are drastically impacting them and drawing them away from truth. And so I say, winds are blowing. And they're beating vehemently on every house and every family and every church. And I am sorry to say that it seems many, even of those who name the name of Christ, are falling away. They're being carried away by these things. They're being swept away, swept up into the philosophy of the world, of the age in which we live. And some of them don't even see it. But the Lord has said in connection to these very things that we now take up at the very end of this great Sermon on the Mount that whoever hears these sayings and does them will be likened to a wise man who built his house on a rock so that when the rain descends, when the floods come, when the winds blow and beat on that house, it will not fall because it is founded upon the rock. And therefore, I say to you, we do well to pay close attention and to stir ourselves up to ensure that the ground upon which we stand is solid ground. And with that in mind, my aim today is to take up what I'm going to call some important introductory matters that I hope will help us to rightly understand and interpret the words as we come to them in their particulars. We're not going to deal with any of the Beatitudes singularly today. We're going to step back and we're going to take a bird's eye view of some of the things that we find here. That's what I want us to focus on and to help us so that when we do come to the Beatitudes individually, we might interpret them and understand them and be paying attention to them as we should. Okay?
And the first thing that we must see in this text before us as vital to our understanding of what's being said is who He is. Notice the words, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, He went up on a mountain. And when He was seated, His disciples came to Him. Then He opened His mouth and taught them. Well, who is He? Who is this preacher that ascends the mountain, that takes his seat, and that has the audacity to open his mouth and begin to teach the things that we find here in this sermon? And to understand this, I want to say, say it negatively first, if I might. We must first recognize that as we come to this text, that these are not merely the words of a man. As you hear and as you read these things that we are speaking about and that I'm going to be preaching about, and as you go to this text and you look at these things, please don't make the fatal mistake of coming to these as merely the words of a man or a great teacher or some kind of psychological guru. I'll show you why I say some of this in just a little bit. Don't come to this in a manner to think that this one who is speaking is some kind of social justice warrior. This sermon that is here is not just a TED talk, right? That we're, we see all over the internet today. It's not just some kind of psychological means to give us a better life. This is not the words of a man. Merely, many have tried to put him in those kinds of categories, and that's why I say this by way of negation, that that's not at all who is speaking. To do that is to misunderstand the entirety, the entirety of what he's saying and what he's doing. If you come to this and you look at this sermon as some kind of direction of how you're to go out and to be a social justice warrior, the social gospel, if you come to this and you look at this and you try to take it as eight or nine steps to having a better life, you will not understand the import. You won't begin to grasp the significance of what He's saying and what He's doing or the entirety of who He Himself is. And that's why I want to take the time to say that by way of negation. The one who speaks these words is in a category all by Himself. And as we look at these words, that must be ringing in our hearts and our minds and always before our eyes that He is in a category all by Himself. These are the words of Jesus. Muhammad, Gandhi, Desmond Tutu, Joseph Smith, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Kant, Nietzsche, Freud, Pavlov, Piaget, Skinner, they're all dead. This Jesus, God has raised up, who Peter says we are all witnesses of. In the fourth chapter of this Gospel of Matthew, Matthew refers to him seven times singularly by that name, Jesus. It's that name which was appointed by the angel that we read of in the very first chapter of this Gospel, verse 21. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. He came to save. That's who this one is. Not a psychological guru. Not a world leader in the sense that many think about world leaders. He came to save. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was His mission. And as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we must come to it with that in mind. That was His mission. This is Jesus, the Savior of His people. And He had a singular eye to that work, not to pontificate, 
Not to experiment, but to save. To save. To save. To give salvation, to bring salvation. And now this one who comes forth to save his people from their sins speaks. Giving instruction concerning this way of salvation. That's what we have here before us. Secondly, these are the words of Christ. We're told from the very outset of this gospel two things that his name shall be called, he shall be called Jesus. But then he says in the very first verse of this gospel, he is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Messiah. That's the one who ascends this mountain. That's the one who takes his seat. That's the one who opens his mouth. The chosen one. The anointed. The one sent by God to be a mediator. A mediator between God and men. Again, not just a teacher. Not just the one who comes to save, but the one who stands between God and men and mediates on behalf of men that they might be reconciled to God. He's the promised seed of the woman who we're told would come and crush the serpent's head. That's who's speaking. The one who came to destroy the works of the devil. That's who's speaking. The one who came to end the tyranny and the reign of the wicked one over the sons of men. That's who's speaking. He's the promised son of David who would establish an everlasting dominion as heir of all things. He comes preaching the kingdom of God because He is the King. He's the King of all kings. And when He comes with this message, He comes in order that He might spread His kingdom from shore to shore and that He might reign forever. He's the promised seed of Abraham. These are so important to understand the context. He is the promised seed of Abraham in whom and by whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And He rises to speak He opens His mouth and pours forth those precious promises. He's the great high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, the surety of a better and an everlasting covenant. He's the prophet ordained and anointed of God, as Isaiah says, Isaiah 61, to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. That's who speaks. And if we approach this sermon in any other way than seeing Him in these ways that I've outlined, then we will not understand the full import. It will not be important to us if you minimize the one from whose mouth these words fell. Let me go further. These are the words of that great light that has dawned over a dark world of death. Oh, how men look far and wide for answers to all of their problems. They psychologize, they philosophize. Matthew says, Matthew 4 verse 15 Quoting a prophecy, the land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the shadow of death, light has dawned. Who is it that speaks as we come to the sermon? 
the Word made flesh. The eternal wisdom, the only begotten, the beloved Son, in whom is all the delight of the Father, in whom He with His own voice echoes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. He lay in the bosom of the Father for all eternity, before all worlds. And John says, He has declared Him. He has made Him known. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. That's who this is. These are the words of the one who's called in the Gospel of Matthew, Emmanuel, God with us. Not just the Word, the wisdom of God made flesh, but God Himself made flesh, now with flesh standing toe to toe, face to face, conversing. Speaking the very way of God Himself. And brethren, I would suggest to us as we come to this wonderful, wonderful and glorious sermon, that the very complexity and majesty of the person rising to speak constrains you and I to listen well to everything that falls from His lips. This is a grand message. This is a glorious message. This is a wonderful message. And it is that because of the one who speaks it. He's the one who can look out, peer out over the multitudes of people and see not just what they look like, but see what they are. And He's the one who knows exactly what needs to be said, how it needs to be said, when and where it needs to be said. Oh, how I pray that you will see this, that this would stir you, that you, you, it would cause you to come to this with a hunger and an excitement and a passion, that this is Jesus, the Christ, who now opens His mouth. And as we come to this text, that's absolutely important that we understand it. Secondly, we must see what He saw. We must see what He saw. What was the occasion of his ascending, his setting, his speaking? Why did he do this? And I'd like to suggest that there are actually four audiences that he has in view as he opened his mouth to preach this sermon. First, he saw the multitudes, we're told. He saw the multitudes. He was moved and he was provoked because of the great crowds that gathered about him. Notice verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. Some would suggest there that it was the multitudes that drove him up the mountain so that he could make a way of escape and get away from them. I'm saying that it was the multitudes that provoked him to rise up and to teach. In fact, we see from the very end of this that these people, when he was done teaching, were still there in some measure. Notice the end of chapter 7 as we come to the, the end of the sermon itself. Verse 28, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as, having, as one having authority and not as the scribes. This seemed to be a driving factor in our Lord's ministry, the multitudes. He always, he always in everything that He did had an eye to the multitudes. And as he eyed the multitudes, he always eyed them with the eye and the heart and the mind and the words of compassion. Everything that flows from the lips of this great Savior, this great Messiah, this one sent by God, God Himself, everything, even the things that confront our sin and call us to repentance, fall from the lips of the one who is filled with compassion for the multitudes. Just notice with me what we find in various places. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 Similar language to 5.1. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them 
because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And it actually prompted him in this text to then look at the disciples and say to them, the harvest is truly plentiful. There are multitudes of people and there is a harvest out there and it is plentiful. Therefore, pray the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He was moved with compassion. Notice again, Matthew 14 and verse 14. This is when He feeds the 5,000. He had departed from there, verse 13, by boat to a deserted place by Himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed Him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, He saw a great multitude, and He said, Man, I cannot get away from these people. No. He never said that. He was moved with compassion for them, and we're told there that He healed their sick. But notice the same... The same account in Mark, in chapter 6, verse 34, very same words except one distinction. And Jesus, when He came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So He began not just to heal them, but He began to teach them out of compassion many things. And so it's clear that Christ recognized the multitudes of people that were following Him. And it's clear that they heard something of what He was saying. But then the question becomes, okay, then who were these multitudes? And I think that this is important to establish for this sermon. And understanding this Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes. Yes, He saw the multitudes. Yes, He was moved with compassion. But who were these people specifically? Well, notice what he says, Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan, and therefore, based on those words, presumably, they were those who had already encountered him that he saw, and in seeing them, he was moved with compassion to go up into this mountain and to begin to preach and say the things that he said. They had heard him already in their synagogues, they had seen something of His power. Perhaps some of them had been on the receiving end of that power. Perhaps some of them had been the paralytics. Perhaps some of them had been the epileptics. Perhaps some of them had been the demon-possessed. Perhaps some of them had family members that they had brought to Him and had seen the great work that He was doing. Verse 25 attributes to them the same response attributed to His disciples in verse 22. They followed Him, it says. Some perhaps out of curiosity, some perhaps out of amazement, some perhaps out of a genuineness. What is this man about? What do I, what do I need to hear from him? But whatever the motive, they came. Whatever the motive, they came. One writer said that they were a mixed multitude. What, it, what he meant by that is that they were... All of these unfit people that we see in this text surrounding Him. But it would also seem from the subsequent narrative of the sermon itself that it wasn't just these unfit, broken people that were surrounding Him. But His fame had also reached the attention of others. And so, G. Campbell Morgan, the predecessor of Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, Pharisees side by side with publicans, ritualists side by side with harlots and sinners, men of light and leading, and the scholarly men of the age side by side with the illiterate, the degraded, the depraved. The presence of Jesus meant the massing of humanity without any reference to mere accidentals of birth and caste and possession. Position. 
His presence seemed to burn all that up. It seemed to cause all these vast multitudes of varying people to forget for at least a moment all of those things. I can imagine. Just put yourself there. and You see these demon-possessed and these paralytic being carried out on stretchers, homemade stretchers. And these epileptics seizing in His presence. And these lame and maimed people coming to Him. And then you see these well-dressed, well-robed, scholarly people approaching and standing side by side, perhaps, with those kinds of people. What a sight to behold. An extraordinary moment as these people thronged about Him. And I doubt that in that moment, as all of this mixed multitude of people, the unfit with those who were well received and praised among the people, I seriously doubt in that moment that our Lord minced His words or was taken up with incidentals. In fact, what I would postulate is that as He rose to that mountain, Every single word that he spoke, he spoke with divine precision, knowing the importance of the moment of those mixed multitude of people being in his presence and hearing his gospel message of the kingdom. He didn't mince words. And the reason that I say that is so that we two brethren will come with the utmost attention. And we mustn't forget in thinking about that multitude among the Jews, uh, among these people, that they were Jews. That's very important, again, to understanding this sermon. These are people who have been reared in a defective Judaism. The whole of the Gospel of Matthew has in view as its primary audience those of Judaism, primarily. It's the most Jewish Gospel of them all. It begins on a Jewish note. As we run through, as in the reading week by week, as we looked at this gospel, one of the things in the very first four chapters that I said every single time that we were reading through it is here's another prophecy fulfilled. Here's another prophecy fulfilled. Well, why did that matter? It mattered because the audience was primarily Jewish. And when Matthew writes this, what he's writing is to prove that this is the Savior, that this is the Messiah, that this is the expected, long-awaited One. And now He has come, and now He stands before this mixed multitude of Jews who have been reared in a defective religion, with a defective doctrine. And as Jesus, the Messiah, sets Himself to speak, it's with an eye, at least in part, to those people as Jews, to correct the false views that they had concocted. This whole picture presented to us in this Sermon on the Mount is reminiscent of Moses. Moses ascended a mountain. Moses received and then delivered a message from God. Moses stood in the presence of God and saw the glory of God and reflected the glory of God and radiated the glory of God and then brought back a message to the people. But it was the message of the law. Here we have the Messiah. The one who is not the mediator of the law, but the one who is the mediator of truth and of the gospel. He's not merely giving law here. He's fulfilling it. He's not merely teaching, but He's confronting and He's correcting. He's not merely presenting law, but He's elevating that. And when He spoke, we're told that those who heard were astonished at His teaching. They said, for He taught them, or Matthew says, for He taught them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Who is this man? Who has ascended this mountain? 
And who now speaks? We've never heard the likes of Him before. We've never heard anyone speak as this man has spoke. We've never heard anyone teach with the authority and the power that this man speaks with. These people have been reared in a defective Judaism. And as Jesus comes, He's coming to right all wrongs. And that's very important to understanding this sermon. He comes correcting. He comes giving light. He comes giving grace. But I would suggest to you that there is a second group present here in this text. Notice verses 1 and 2 again. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them. Who's the them? It's the disciples. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them as well. What does that mean? Why is that important? Because as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, it's not only important to understand that there is a group of people being being addressed that were reared in a defective Judaism, but there is a, an inner group of people, the disciples. And this message that we have before us was specifically and primarily with a view to teaching His disciples. Those who had heard His message of repentance, those who had believed upon Him, those who had followed, not out of curiosity, but those who were following Him out of faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the whole presupposition was that it was preached to them. He taught them specifically. And we can... See that very easily by some of the words that we find in the Beatitudes. Verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile and they persecute you for my sake. Or verses 13 through 16, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that they may see and glorify your Father in heaven. Is He speaking to the mixed multitude there? When he says that, that you are suffering and that you are being persecuted for my sake? No. That you are the light of the world? That you are the salt of the earth? Is he speaking to the mixed multitude there? No. Again, G. Campbell Morgan, the multitude cannot truly appreciate this teaching. Cannot obey it will not be attracted by it, but will rather be affrighted by it. He must give it to some souls who can appreciate it, obey it, and then manifest it. He must give it not to the promiscuous mob, which is curious merely, but to the selected souls who are loyal to the king and his kingdom. And therefore, what we have set before us is a perfect picture of the life of those that are His. He's instructing His disciples about what life looks like connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and His kingdom. Christ is not instructing them about how to live in order to be His. Never approach this sermon in that way. If you come to the sermon and you think this is instruction about how I am to be His, then you've missed the point of it. He's not teaching them to show them how to become His. He's instructing them on how to live because they are His. You are the salt. You are the light. Therefore, let your light shine. That's the purpose of this sermon. To take His disciples and to say... You are mine, and therefore this is what life in the kingdom looks like. It's a discourse, one has called it, I think it was John Stott, a discourse on discipleship. He called it that instead of the Sermon on the Mount. He called it the discourse of discipleship. 
It doesn't seek to answer how a person's made a partaker of the kingdom. That's not the primary focus. But who these partakers are and what marks them out. What human life and human community is under the rule of King Jesus. Again, Lloyd-Jones. What is of supreme importance is that we must always remember that this is a description of character and not a code of ethics or morals. It's not to be regarded as law, a kind of new Ten Commandments, or a set of rules and regulations which are to be carried out, but rather it is to be considered as a description of what Christ's people are meant to be illustrated in certain particular respects. Now, if you want to interpret this sermon the right way, you have to get that. You have to understand that. And because of this, because He's speaking and He's teaching to His disciples and He's giving a discourse on true discipleship under His rule, I would say that in the third place, this message, who He has in view, is applicable and it's meant for all Christians in all ages. Now, this is important to distinguish because of some of the things that are taught in our day regarding this Sermon on the Mount. But this is the third group, I believe, that the Lord truly does have in view as He rises up upon this mountain and He sets Himself and He teaches and He opens His mouth and He begins this discourse of discipleship, this Sermon on the Mount. Not just those disciples that were front and present, but all the disciples through all the ages. And again, I would say that this is the King. The King of all ages speaking very evidently about His kingdom and His people in His kingdom. See, the opening of His mouth, as as we come to this text, the opening of His mouth is the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. When He begins to preach, He comes preaching repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here is what He's saying as He opens His mouth and preaches repentance. It's here. This is the inauguration of this kingdom. But it doesn't stop at that. It did not, as some would say, and this is why it's relevant and important to understanding and interpreting the whole of the sermon His kingdom didn't end at the rejection of the Jews. People teach that. That this was just meant for those Jews. And nobody else. And that because they rejected Him, this sermon no longer has any import or any significance to anyone in this present age. But the sermon didn't end at the rejection of the Jews. Further, it wasn't placed on hold, as some would say, that there's coming a time in the great millennial kingdom when Christ comes back and establishes His rule on earth where then we can take Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 back. And that's when it's applicable. That's not true. Rather, I would say from this time forth and forevermore the king sits upon his throne and he advances his kingdom. His kingdom did not end with the rejection of the Jews. His kingdom has not been placed on pause until a latter day. His kingdom is now. Notice his last words, Matthew 28 verses 18 and 20. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples, continue making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, when Paul is praying that the believers there in Ephesus would know something of the power of God towards them. He says that you would know what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. How? According to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ 
when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet. That's not a time in the future. That's now. And gave Him now to be head over all things to His church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Or Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, Grace to you now and peace to you now from the Father, from the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then John says, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. And then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. My point is this. His kingdom is, His kingdom advances, and His kingdom is yet to come. Therefore, I say that these things that are spoken are not to be ignored by us, as some would say. They are not to be dismissed as antiquated and only applicable to first century Jews and disciples. They're not to be hung out there as only applicable for those subjects of some future kingdom that will one day be, but not yet. But as His people, brethren, as His people, they are to be fully embraced and understood now. And again, I go back. Hear the King's voice. This is the King's voice. With all His regal authority as speaking directly, not just to the disciples, but to you. As though we were sitting side by side with those that had gathered there on that mount. Because in a very real sense, mystically, we are side by side with them. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. To the blood which speaks better things than that of Abel. He speaks to you and I. And as we interpret this, it is vital that we say it. And that we understand it. And that we see it. He has in view not only the multitudes of Jews, not only the disciples who are there, but you and I, brethren. You and I. And then I would add this finally that in light of this enduring witness and testimony, there is a fourth group that are all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, reigning Savior and King has in view. And that's the multitudes in this world, at this moment, and in all generations who are still outside of Christ and His kingdom. He has you in view, if that's you. The message is still the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's still making His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He's still sending His reign on the just and the unjust. He's still showing compassion every single day in the provision that He makes even upon a wicked world. And He Himself is still the same one who looked out on the vast multitudes and was and is moved with compassion. Very interesting. One of the last words of the Old Testament is curse. One of the very first words of our Lord 
is blessed. And that message rings forth not just as a discourse on discipleship, but as a clarion call to the vast multitudes of people that may even this very day sit under the sound of His gospel, the sound of His words. Repent and believe. I did not come into the world to condemn the world. I came to save. His people are still called to live in such a way that our lights should shine so that the world around us might see and glorify our Father in heaven. And the world is still confronted with things like this narrow gate that leads to life and the broad way that leads to destruction. The world still awaits that day that He speaks of in 722. And they will all stand before Him, as I've said already, in the judgment. And they still, the vast multitudes of people, fall under the whoever and the everyone spoken of at the end of this sermon. Just listen again to it. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. His words are clear. His words are direct. His words are authoritative. His words have a singular aim. And we, all of us, do well to take heed. Oh, how God might help us as we take up this study in these days. Lord, we would pray even now. We would plead with you, Lord Jesus. You are not a dead God. You are not a dead man. You are the risen. You are the ruling. You are the reigning. You are the triumphant Savior. And Lord, these are not the words of the preacher. These are not the words of a mere man. These are the words that come from your lips. And so I pray this morning for your disciples that are gathered together in this place that, Lord, these words would be a help and a strength and an encouragement to their souls. I pray that it would help them to stand against the, 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 the rising tide of wickedness all around them. And Lord, I pray for those who are not in your kingdom, that they would see your compassion, that they would see that the very first words that fall from your lips are blessed, that they would see that you are moved upon the multitudes with compassion, that you healed them, that you taught them, that you saw there in that vast multitude a great harvest. Lord, I pray that in the hearing of your voice, even this day, that you would draw sinners to yourself. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.